Michael Myers Minute, where I delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween, one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Loomis's radar hasn't really helped him, but he gets lucky as Laurie has sent Tommy and Lindsay running for help. He approaches the camera as minute 87 begins. In the novelization, Loomis interacts with the kids, quote, The shrieking came from the next block, and Loomis knew this was no Halloween prank. It was too late for children to be outside, and if that was not true terror in their cries for help, Loomis did not know what true terror was. He cut across the lawn to find them racing up a walk to a white ranch house. They saw him, a Mephistophelian figure in goatee, bald head and trench coat fluttering in the wind, and they shrieked even louder, turning tail and fleeing into a backyard. It's him, the boogeyman, he heard one shout. He hurdled a rustic fence and dashed into the yard. Children, it's all right, he murmured in his most reassuring tone. It's all right, kids. I'm your friend. They were not difficult to find. He spotted their light clothing behind a tree too narrow to conceal them, and though he knew it would scare the wits out of them if their wits hadn't been totally scared out of them already, he had to capture them to find out what they were running away from. He tiptoed up to the tree, then dashed around it, tackling them both in strong but gentle arms. They broke into hysterical cries and wriggled in his arms in a desperate effort to escape. He clutched them tightly, uttering tender blandishments to soothe them until, at last, they relaxed long enough to answer his questions. Where are you coming from? There, the little boy said with a general sweep of the western horizon. Nitpick. The Doyle house is on the east side of the street. Where's there? Show me. They escorted him back to the front lawn. Tommy pointed to a house, catty-corner from their position. Its lights were out, its front door wide open. What's going on out there? A voice shouted. A porch light went on and a man in pajamas stormed out of the house. There's trouble across the street. Serious trouble, Loomis said, dragging the children to the man by the collars of their shirts. Take these kids and call the police at once. Get Sheriff Beckett. Tell him I found our friend at... At that house there. The Doyle house? Whichever that one is with the door open. Mister, this is no joke. I mean, I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is, Loomis hissed, drawing his gun as he rushed across the street. End quote. That last bit of dialogue is saved for the beginning of the second film, the beginning of Minute 5. Here in the original, Minute 87, Second 2, Angle on Doyle House. In the Halloween 2 repeat of this moment, it cuts from this shot to inside with Laurie. Here in the original, it lingers outside longer. Back on Loomis, second three, as he leans to the right and looks, presumably, after the children running however far away they are running. Second six, cut two. In the script, we get the previous shot with Laurie in the doorway and the shape sitting up. Instead, we're past that now. He's already sitting. Close shot, Laurie. Laurie rises into frame, holding herself erect by grasping the door frame. High notes kick in. Second eight, behind her the shape rises up into frame quickly, silently. Second eleven, Lori sniffs. Lori just hangs there on the doorframe. In the script, an exhausted, ironic smile comes over her face. Lori. Well, kiddo? Some Halloween. Which is a nice callback to earlier, but the tone seems wrong here. And I think not having it was the right call. 
Even better, we don't get a really lame passage from the novelization. Quote, If anyone had told her a mere three or four hours ago that she would be shoving a knife into a man's body, she'd have had that person certified and committed to the funny farm. But now that she realized that this nightmare wasn't going to end by itself, that no one was going to shake her shoulder and say, Come on, wake up, it's time to go to school. She felt capable of anything. She had, in the course of a half hour, gone from a wide-eyed innocent to a willing, even eager participant in this deadly game. No soldier had ever gone through a quicker basic training. End quote. But she is in her head again in this moment in the novelization. Quote, she would have liked to wait for the police, but God knew if the kids had done what she'd instructed them to do, so she didn't want to wait. But she didn't want to flee the house either. So suppose she did, and when she returned with the police, he was gone. Would she ever sleep peacefully again, knowing he was out there? Would she ever sleep peacefully again, knowing he was out there, alive, lurking, stalking? No. She must either stand guard here, outside the bedroom door, or or go in there and look upon the still corpse, so that she could comfort herself with the image of his dead body whenever the horror visited her dreams. That is, if he were dead. Suppose he weren't. She knew he was badly hurt, a needle in the neck, a hanger in the eye, a knife in the groin. Surely no one who wasn't supernatural could endure such injuries and still live. Then what held her back from going in there? It was the realization that if by some miracle he were still alive, she would have to finish the job. She was no longer afraid that he could harm her. It was inconceivable to her that he could be that alive, let alone alive at all. No, it was the idea of actually murdering someone in cold blood. Self-defense was one thing, but a helpless man, even one who had slaughtered her three friends, who had attempted to do the same to her, she wasn't sure she could bring herself to do it. Essentially, she was not an avenger. Civilization was too deeply bred into her. The killer instinct had been diluted to the point where normally she could not imagine doing anything more harmful with a knife than cutting a slab of roast beef on her dinner plate. The longer she sat, the more confused and uncertain she became. She wished the decision could be taken out of her hands. A moment later, it was. End quote. Second 14, slowly the shape moves for her. In the script, his hands outstretched. And just as he is about to grab her, Lori manages to step out the door. Not quite in the film. Second 22, Lori starts to move. Second 23, angle in hall. Once again, Lori is preceded by her shadow. Unaware he is behind her, Lori limps toward the stairs. The script says... Really, in order to get to the stairs, she would have to come toward the camera. But she just kind of goes to the left. Second 27, Michael is also preceded by his shadow. In the script, it says suddenly the shape jumps out of the bedroom. Really, he just kind of walks along behind her. He grabs her, hands around her neck. Lori screams. And let us backtrack again. Because the novelization of Halloween 2 offers us a brief and weirdly wrong take on Loomis's approach. His eyes were already attuned to the dark. He raised the gun and braced his arm with his other hand. He crouched and swung his body in a half-circle, sweeping the room, straight-arming the gun from side to side in front of him. Already? Though I like this writing better than that in the novelization of the original film, it's like this writer has never seen Loomis. It's no hurtling over rustic fences, but unless this moment was played as comical... It is not Dr. Loomis if he's being so careful with his gun. Loomis is jumpy. Loomis is scared. His evil radar failed him, and he almost didn't even make it here. But I'm at the quotation. The old light fixture in the ceiling creaked, vibrating. The sounds of a struggle upstairs. 
the metallic smell of blood in the air. There, at the top of the landing, legs, ankles moving in a spastic dance, feet lifting off the floor, squirming, kicking, dragged away down the hall. He couldn't have seen any of that from there, from that angle. Loomis mounted the stairs two at a time. Back to the film. Second 36. She twists and squirms and claws at him, her finger ripping at his mask. She pulls it over his face, wriggles out of his grip, and turns around. The script says. Another angle, second 38, and back, second 39. Laurie drops out of frame as Michael here, played by Tony Moran, steps back into shadow. Second 41. He steps into the light. His left eye shows the damage of Laurie's hanger jab. The script says close shot, Michael. The shape, Michael, stares at her with his one eye. He has a dank, white face with blonde hair. There is something completely inhuman about his features. The open mouth, the dark staring eye. In Glen Hall, Michael lunges at her again. But this doesn't happen because second 42. Angle on Loomis as he raises his gun. The sequence is cut basically the same here and in the Halloween 2 repeat. But in the repeat, we get a sound effect like Loomis is pulling the hammer back with his thumb as he raises the gun. Which is a little too gunslinger for Loomis. Back to the novelization of Halloween 2. He flattened against the wall. A girl, a teenage girl, was dangling at the end of the landing. She was held around the throat by two huge white hands. The hands were attached to the heavy, muscular arms of a tall, very tall shape wearing a mask. It was him. Loomis aimed. He couldn't get a clear shot. The girl, she could no longer scream. She was reaching up clawing at the pale death's head in front of her in a last mad spasm. As Loomis watched, the rubber mask wrinkled and slid up under her fingernails. The shape let go of her, just long enough to pull the mask back down. Then the head tilted to one side, observing, like, like an, an animal, animal. Curious. curious, utterly, utterly detached. detached. The girl's mouth opened and she screamed again, it was a scream that curdled Loomis's blood, a scream of someone who at that instant might have wished she had never been born. Loomis cocked the hammer with both thumbs and sighted at the mask. It has been raised only an instant, but long enough to reveal the inconceivable, bland, emotionless features of a face, free of any feeling, a creature so devoid of any recognizable human expression that it was capable of absolutely anything. It could as easily tear the arms and legs from a human being as from a fly, with no inner restraints, conscience, guilt, no hesitation, no consideration of the consequences, and no remorse, no conscience. A perfect killing machine, a pure and simple alien ego devoted entirely to its own subhuman purposes. It had not been born of man and woman, through them, but not of them. An imposter in human-like form, simulacrum, catapulted here across generations of evolution, from the dawn of prehistory, to subvert and destroy the accomplishments of an entire species. I will not have it, thought Loomis savagely. In the name of my own kind, and all that we have come to stand for, I send you back to the darkness from which you were spawned. You go to hell, Michael Myers, or whatever your name really is. Now! Without hesitation, Loomis pulled the trigger. Back to the film. Second 44. 
angle on shape as he pulls on his mask. Second 46. Angle on Loomis. There is a sudden thundering explosion. At angle on shape, Michael is blown backward. Second 47. The script says Lori falls back against the wall. Angle on Lori, her ears covered, her eyes closed. She whimpers. She starts to uncover her ears and open her eyes. In second 49. Angle on Loomis. He moves forward down the hall. Second 52. Angle from bedroom. Loomis comes through the doorway. Second 53. Angle on shape. The script says Michael slowly gets to his feet, still refusing to die. In the film, Michael doesn't seem to have even lost his footing yet. He is almost all silhouette. His asthma may have gotten worse, which makes sense as the Halloween 2 novelization specifies that the first shot hit him in the chest. Second 54. Angle on Loomis. Loomis stops and takes aim. Second 55. Bang! script specifies that Michael is hit three times here, each bullet throwing him backward further. In the film, he is pushed across the bedroom toward the balcony door that Laurie opened in minute 83 and out to the railing. Second 59, exterior, Doyle house, up angle, and the minute ends. In the Halloween 2 repeat of this sequence, after the fourth gunshot, we cut to the exterior of the Doyle house, the front of it, because I guess by 1981, whoever was living there would let the film crew inside, and Michael is falling off the balcony over the front porch instead of the one we see here. We also, quite infamously, get an extra gunshot sound effect. Additionally, as I love to nitpick the internal geography of these properties within the universe of the film, Tommy came to the window at the far right of the second floor in minute 80. This balcony in Halloween 2 would be attached to a completely different room. My guest, Alan Sanders, isn't really here, but it's still time for guest questions. Number one, have you ever murdered anyone, or do you plan to? Well, murder indicates premeditation, and so, therefore, I can honestly say, have I not ever in my life murdered anyone, nor do I ever plan to. Now, does that mean if someone were to break into my house, threaten my life or my family's, that I wouldn't use all means necessary, including fatal force, to remove that threat? Absolutely, I would. I've got my concealed carry. I go to the range. I'm friends with the sheriff of Bartow County. I've practiced with him and his other range instructors. If someone were to threaten any of my friends, any of my loved ones, in fact, any stranger, for whatever reason, then yes, I would have no hesitation pulling the trigger. But to murder someone, no. For someone to have done something to threaten someone else and end up dying in the process, so be it. Number two. What is your history with Halloween? The movie, the franchise, the holiday? All right. I've seen Halloween and Halloween 2 a handful of times. I wouldn't call myself an expert by any stretch of the imagination, and it's been years since I've seen either one of them. My first thought is much like I think about Rocky 1 and Rocky 2. When I saw it, I was amazed at how you could create a sequel that made the first movie seem like an extension rather than a separate tale or a separate story that had a similarity, like a James Bond continuation or something like that. For me, Halloween is one long movie. Halloween 1 follows Halloween 2, much like Rocky is one long movie with Rocky 1 followed by Rocky 2. As far as the holiday, loved it. Loved, I shouldn't say loved past tense. 
Love it. The last several years have been less decorated, maybe even less trick-or-treaters at the house based on where we live. The kids have gotten older, three in college now. My high schooler left at home, doesn't really do trick-or-treating. The neighborhood's growing up. There are a few younger children, so not much in the way of a lot of what's going on, not much in the way of dress-up. Though last year we did go to a fundraiser for the homeless shelter, and it was a costume party. And so I dressed up as Han Solo, and my wife dressed up as Princess Leia, and it was a lot of fun, and we like doing things like that. So as far as the holiday is concerned, it sort of has, I don't want to say run its course, but in terms of the amount of theatricality around the house, the decoration, the fog machine, the strobe light, the music, the screams from the speakers I set up from the upstairs window to scare children as they come to the front door, that's changed. That's softened. But my love for dress-up, or certainly my love for Halloween or scary-type movies, is still just as strong. And if you had to pick my brain for what is my all-time favorite movies to watch during the Halloween season, among them would be the original 1982 Poltergeist, The Exorcist, The Amityville Horror, the first Alien movie, and of course Halloween. But let's not forget The Thing and The Fog, also by John Carpenter. Number three, could Inspector Kemp Stop Michael Myers. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Could Inspector Kemp, could Inspector Kemp with his ratcheted arm stop Michael Myers? You know, I want to believe that much like Inspector Clouseau always finds a way of getting the better of his adversary through his own stupidity, that perhaps Inspector Kemp could find a way, but I have a feeling that Michael Myers, much like the shark in Jaws, is just driven and is nonstop. He is a efficient, charging, killing machine with no remorse. It's almost like the Terminator. And in that respect, I don't think that even though Kemp may have a ratcheted Terminator-like arm, Michael Myers is, I think, more than Inspector Kemp could handle. One more thing, Alan. How can the listeners stalk you? <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to learn a little bit more about me, Alan Sanders, and where I hail, me and my co-host, Walt Murray, are in charge of The Wilder Ride. That's our podcast where we celebrate the films of Gene Wilder one minute at a time. Last season was dedicated to analyzing the film Young Frankenstein, and we are now in the midst of Blazing Saddles for season number two. So you can find us at thewilderride.com. And you can just do a search for that phrase everywhere. We have it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and every podcatcher of choice. Use the Wilder Ride. Find us, subscribe, like, share, follow. And we'd love to have you part of our listeners group as well. We've got a closed listeners group on Facebook and have a very active group. And would love to have you join us. We also have a Patreon page if you are of so minded to fund or support these kinds of podcasts financially. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the wilder ride. That is all from Minute 87. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. 
Stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram Michael Myers Minute. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time. See you later. Bye. Bye.